Ladies and gentlemen, we welcome you to our special program series sponsored by AccessibleWorld.org. This is Robert Acosta, and I guess I'm the, now the uh, chair emeritus of this wonderful organization, whatever. We're very honored to welcome back our dear friend, Ira Fistel. It's been too long, and also accompanying him is his lovely wife, Rachel, and she's the best. So without further ado, he'll tell you what he's going to talk about. I give you Ira Fistel. Ira, the telephone in this case is yours. Well, thank you very much, Bob. And uh, you said something very true. Rachel is the best. <laughs> <laughs> it took me a long time to, to rein her in. But uh, after knowing each other uh, as teenagers in uh, high school, we we uh, lost each other for 43 years, and then we got back together again, and we've been together for almost 16 years now. So it's uh, it's a wonderful love story. Anyway, uh, I thought we'd talk tonight about presidents. Now, there have been 44 people who have served in the office of President of the United States. Now, you all know, I'm sure, that uh, Donald Trump is called the 45th president. Well, he is the 45th president in, if you count terms, administrations. There have been 45 administrations, but only 44 people because... Grover Cleveland, who uh, was president in the late 19th century, served one four-year term, then lost the next election, so he was out of office for four years, and then he came back and was re-elected, not continuously, but for the second term, and it was not a, a uh, continuous administration. So... Uh, that's why we have 45 presidents, as they count them, but only 44 men holding the office. Now, um, we all know a lot about the great presidents. There are, I think, by my count, uh, five presidents who I think almost everybody would agree was a great president. Those five are George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Abraham Lincoln, Theodore Roosevelt, and Franklin Roosevelt. Those two were distant cousins. They were fifth cousins. <laughs> so that's almost no relationship at all. But they both had the last name Roosevelt, and both of them were very successful presidents. Now, then there were presidents who were the near greats, very good presidents. John Adams was one. James K. Polk was one. Most people have probably never heard of James K. Polk these days, but Polk was unique. He served one four-year term. He announced at the beginning of his term what he wanted to do. He did everything he wanted to do, and then he quit. He didn't want to run again. He's the only president who achieved everything he wanted to do and then just left office. So that in itself 
is a uh, reason for considering him to be a very good president, very successful. Then we have presidents who some people would think were very uh, successful, and other people thought they were awful. Example, Ronald Reagan and Bill Clinton. Those are two, uh, two clear examples. Reagan was despised by uh, a lot of people, and uh, Clinton was despised even more, and there was an attempt to uh, impeach him. But both of them served two four-year terms and just left office, uh, having done pretty much what uh, either was considered great or considered terrible. Then we have some two, uh, two or three extremely controversial presidents. Andrew Jackson is first on that list. Jackson these days is about to be taken off the, the um, what is it, $20 bill that he's on uh, uh, because he was vehemently, vehemently hated um, uh, Native Americans. He was a fighter. He fought duels. He killed people. He was a, well, you wouldn't call him a, a feminist, although he was an ardent defender of his wife's honor. And people used to say that uh, she was a bigamist because she, she wasn't fully divorced when he married her. Uh, he did not go along with that. And he, he uh, spent part of his term defending his wife, Rachel, another Rachel. <laughs> then there was another extremely, extremely controversial president whose name was Richard Milhouse Nixon. Richard Nixon is one of my, one of the presidents I'm most interested in. I met him and I uh, was able to size him up for myself after he had been out of the White House, to be sure. But Richard Nixon had an aura about him. It was, it was such a palpable aura. I could feel it. I could almost feel it and sense it and see it. It was like he had a aura around his head. He was a, a smart man, but he was not a wise man. He was an able man. But he also was a crook, despite the fact that he said he wasn't. He was. Uh, out of office, and when he was uh, trying to uh, get away with something, with thinking nobody was hearing him, he was a violent hater. And uh, not, a, not a nice man at all. Um, one of my professors, who wrote extensively about Richard Nixon, said that in writing that he and his wife, Pat, hardly ever communicated. They just didn't talk to each other. And uh, I have to take that with a grain of salt, but I think it's probably likely that uh, they did not have an easy marriage. And, of course, he did not have an easy term in the office and was forced to eventually to resign because he saw he was going to be impeached if he didn't. All right, and then there's another group of presidents, the overrated, underrated group. Overrated, 
I would say, my in my uh, estimation, Woodrow Wilson, the 28th president, was overrated, very overrated. He gets a good press, but um, I think that his con- his term in office was quite controversial, uh, and he was not a successful president. They they uh, got him reelected on the slogan "He kept us out of war." And a couple of months afterwards, he signed the Declaration of War. Uh, this was World War One. Another, I think, overrated president was John F. Kennedy. He was a, a breath of fresh air in the White House, and uh, everybody loved him. But when you look at his record, uh, he didn't get an awful lot done. And he did fall into the trap of the Bay of Pigs invasion, which was totally unsuccessful. So you can't really call JFK a successful president. You could call him a popular president. Then we have the underrated presidents. I think James Van Buren was, Martin rather, Martin Van Buren was underrated. I think Dwight Eisenhower is turning out every day to have been more uh, underrated than anybody believed. Um, Gerald Ford, I think, while he only served three years, was an underrated president because he was in charge of healing the ruins left by Richard Nixon's forced resignation. And Jerry Ford is the only president who was never elected to a national office. Did you realize that? The only thing he was ever elected to was the House of Representatives from Michigan because he became vice president when Spiro Agnew, Nixon's first vice president, got caught cheating on his taxes and was uh, had to resign. And then Ford was chosen under the 27th, uh, the 21st Amendment. I, yeah, I think it's 21st. Anyway, he was chosen president by Congress, vice president by Congress. And he was never elected to any national office at all. And yet he handled the office of vice president and uh, quite 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 well and uh, was a reasonably decent president, especially considering the, the mess that he inherited from Nixon. So I think he's an underrated president. Now we get to the non-entities. There are about 10 to 12 presidents who uh, whose names you probably may not even remember. How many of you out there remember that Millard Fillmore was a president of the United States? How many of you remember John Tyler and Zachary Taylor without getting both of them mixed up? Tyler and Taylor. What about James Buchanan? who has been for years considered the worst president in the history of the United States by a great many people and historians. There were a couple of others in that category, though. I could name you Warren Gamaliel Harding, whose most important uh, events of of his presidency were his scandals and his um, death and under mysterious circumstances 
perhaps at the hand of his wife, <laughs> who was, I think, pretty angry with his mistresses. Uh, Harding, um, Harding is not known for anything very good. Uh, another, uh, another president, a non-entity, was Franklin Pierce. Now, Franklin Pierce, we'll get to in, uh, in time here. I'm going to talk about him. Um, Benjamin Harrison, William Henry Harrison, and a couple of 20th century par- other presidents. One of them was Calvin Coolidge. Um, you'll enjoy hearing about Calvin Coolidge, I think. <laughs> so we'll, let's get down to uh, talking about some of the reasons why I rate presidents the way I do. And I think uh, there, are, there are some standards that come to me and that I think are important, and I'm going to let you figure upon yourselves how important each of these factors is. For the first rating of first-rate chief executives, first and foremost, most important is what they accomplished in office. George Washington was our first president, and he set every standard of conduct that a president should live up to. He was the man who interpreted the Constitution and brought the American Constitution to life. He was the first president under the Constitution. Not only that, he set standards of behavior for presidents, standards of, dif- of um, what should I say, uh, well, I'm looking for a word and I can't find it. Uh, standards of conduct. At the end of his two terms, it was George Washington who said, that's enough. I'm not going to run for any third term, and I'm not going to be king of the country. I don't want to be king. I don't want to be dictator. <clears throat> and George Washington retired to his estate and died a couple of years later. He was truly a great president. Next, we have Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln faced probably the greatest crisis the country has ever faced. faced rather, uh, Of course, that was the American Civil War. He inherited the uh, situation when several states in, seceded or tried to secede from the Union and they did it beginning with South Carolina right after he was elected. And he had to handle that. And not only did they secede, but then when more states seceded, and he, because he called for troops to uh, keep the secession of states from seceding, he uh, was, found himself in the middle of a civil war. And the war went on for four years, cost at least 700,000 American lives, maybe more, and enormous property damage, and left the angry, the basis of all the angry things that, that people talk about today. And did you realize that the seceded states of the South, the 11 states that seceded, to this day, are different politically, 
than the rest of the country. And they are difficult, different, different uh, standards and different customs of life. These are legacies of the Civil War and the period before the Civil War. So Lincoln had to bind up the nation's wounds, as he said in his second inaugural, and he tried very hard to be fair. And you can judge for yourself uh, whether he was, but I think most Americans today would recognize Lincoln as a great president. There are places in the South that, um, <laughs> well, I can tell you a story. Um, it's about a, a license plate. Uh, we come from, originally, the state of Illinois, which is called the Land of Lincoln. And some of our friends from Illinois said that when they were in the South, they felt as if uh, they were being watched and, uh, you know, uh, being targets because, because their license plate said Land of Lincoln. And somebody in the South down there kept saying, well, well, we don't like Lincoln down here. <laughs> so, uh, you know, long-held feelings and uh, long-held standards don't always go away. All right. Back to the non-entities. I'm going to give them to you chronologically. The first one I'm going to mention is William Henry Harrison. Harrison was the ninth president. The first eight were all at least quality presidents. Not all great, but all, all of them had some really good, good things to do and did them good things. Washington, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, who and he, he was a great president because his own politics, his own political view was that the Constitution was a narrow document, and if a power wasn't mentioned in the Constitution, that the federal government didn't have it. Well, come along to Napoleon, who offered for sale the, the whole Louisiana Purchase, uh, which doubled or tripled the size of the United States. Jefferson was uh, asked to pay for the land. Uh, his, his representative, Robert Livingston, of Louisiana, by the way, went to Napoleon and arranged a deal with Napoleon to buy all that land that France had been holding, uh, which con continued, contained uh, an, the whole center of the North American continent, in addition to the state of Louisiana, what is now the state of Louisiana. Well, Jefferson saw that this was just too good to, to pass up, and so he went against his own political views and made the purchase. Now that is a great man. When you can do what's good for the country, even if it's not your own political position, and if it, if it uh, goes against your own political position, Thomas Jefferson did it. Jefferson was also a great president in another way. He was a great visionary. But the catch to that was his doings and his writings 
don't coincide. Thomas Jefferson wrote, all men are created equal and kept slaves. Um, Jefferson is a a kind of a a kind of a difficult uh, man to deal with because he's so complicated. But he was a great man and a great president. All right. Then the fourth president was James Madison. Madison, one of my professors, called Thomas Jefferson's errand boy. Uh, Madison grew up in the same area, became president after Jefferson, carried out many of Jefferson's policies. Um, but he was a he was a good president. Uh, he may not have been the giant that Washington or Jefferson was, but uh, Madison was a good president. James Monroe followed Madison, another Virginian in this cycle of Virginia presidents. Monroe uh, was president during what they called the era of good feeling. Actually, you know, the feelings weren't so good, but there was no political opposition to Madison, who served two terms. And then comes John Quincy Adams, the lesser of the two Adams boys. Uh, John Quincy was descendant of John the first John Adams. John Quincy only served one term, but he was a stalwart uh, New Englander, and uh, uh, you know things things in his his administration were difficult. Uh, he took a lot of a lot of guff uh, from Andrew Jackson, who he defeated in the House of Representatives to become president. And Andrew Jackson beat him in the next election. But uh, John Quincy was a competent, a competent man and a good man. Jackson, as I mentioned, was extremely controversial. He was succeeded by Martin Van Buren. And Martin Van Buren was a Dutchman from upstate New York who had to uh, follow Jackson and ease the, the kind of things that Jackson did. Um, and Jackson made a lot of enemies. Van Buren softened them. That brings us to William Henry Harrison. He was born in the colonial period. He was born in 1773, before the United States was created. He was a Virginian. He was the son of a wealthy plantation owner, Benjamin Harrison, who signed the Declaration of Independence when his son was a little boy. And Harrison went to actually went to college. Benjamin, uh, not Benjamin, William Henry actually went to college. He went to Hampton, Sydney, which is still in existence. For uh, didn't graduate, but he he did go there, and it served as a, a, a governmental employee and a governmental agent. He was a governor of the Indiana Territory. He was superintendent of Indian Affairs, and like Andrew Jackson, he was involved in Indian fighting. He got his nickname, Tippecanoe, because he was the general who, in November 7th, 1811, at Tippecanoe, Indiana, defeated the tribe that was 
uh, led by Tecumseh, the great chief who was trying to organize a confederation of Indians to go against the white men. Harrison defeated Trump, uh, Tecumseh. <laughs> How about that for a, for a uh, Freudian slip? Uh, Tecumseh was not at the present, present at that battlefield, which is why Harrison attacked at that time. But Tecumseh's brother was the leader of the Indian tribes, and Harrison defeated Tecumseh's brother and the Indians and won his name as Tippecanoe. <clears throat> he became president in 1841 and served the shortest amount of time of any American president, 31 days. It seems that at his inauguration, it was a cold day. It was March, you know, and those, those days, uh, March was the inauguration month. And he went out and served in the, uh, to, to uh, give his uh, speech for two hours with no hat on. And he got pneumonia, and uh, that was the end of William Henry Harrison. So he was followed by his vice president. William Henry Harrison didn't have time to do anything good or bad. So he is a non-entity by virtue of the fact that he was dead almost before he was in office. His successor was John Tyler. John Tyler uh, is a phenomenon. He was the 10th president because uh, he was the vice president elected with Henry Harrison. He also was born in the 1700s, but he was 17 years younger than uh, the man he replaced, William Henry Harrison. John Tyler is best known for being the father of about 16 children. Uh, <laughs> uh, he also was not a very active president. Tyler is known in history as his accidency because he was not elected to uh, be president. He only became vice pres president because as vice president, he moved into the office of president by accident when uh, Harrison died. Tyler accepted the nomination from Democrats, but then he withdrew and was, uh, became a Whig because he, his party was really the Democratic Party, but Polk was the official Democratic candidate in uh, 1844, and Tyler withdrew and uh, became a, a Whig, and he was a strong advocate of states' rights served briefly in, in the Confederacy, in the House of Representatives of the Confederacy, before he died in 1862. So he is one of the presidents that you can pretty much forget, and you can easily confuse him with the man who came one term of office later, Zachary Taylor. So you have Tyler, then Polk, who was very successful, and one of the extremely successful presidents. And then you have Taylor, the 12th president. 
he was almost as uh, unsuccessful as William Henry Harrison. He only was in office for 16 months before he died. He was a military man. Zachary Taylor was the army officer who was uh, served in the War of 1812, the Black Hawk War, the Seminole Wars, and in 1846, the Mexican War. He was one of the two top generals for the United States in the Mexican War, and he fought and beat the Mexican leader, Santa Ana, at the Battle of Buena Vista in 1847, and that set him up to be the Whig nominee for president in 1848. At the time he was elected, he had never bothered to cast a vote. The only president who never voted. <laughs> um, then again, uh, Taylor resumed the spoils system, which uh, Jackson had started. He was a slaveholder, although, ironically, he worked to admit California as a free state. Now, you figure that one out. He died from a case likely of acute gastronomicus, the gastro gastroenteritis, rather, and died in office in 1850. The man who succeeded him was even more a non-entity. Does a pattern begin to emerge here? William Henry Harrison, John Tyler, Skip James Polk, who was quite successful, Zachary Taylor, and now we get Millard Fillmore, the fourth out of five presidents to be a, uh, shall we say, non-entity. Fillmore is the first president born in the 19th century. He just made it. He was born on January 7, 1800 in uh, New York State. He had almost no schooling, but became a law clerk at the age of 22 and uh, passed the bar a, minute, a year later. And then he became a politician. He went into the New York Assembly in 1828, served three years, and then two more years, and then six more years in the State House of Representatives, and then the U.S. House of Representatives. He opposed the uh, entrance of Texas as a slave state, and he voted for a protective tariff. And then in 1844, he was defeated for governor of New York, and it looked like his career was over. But he wound up as vice president under Taylor, and Fillmore uh, served the last two years of Taylor's term as president. He was uh, very controversial in his own time. He favored the Compromise of 1850, but he also signed the Fugitive Slave Law, which was part of that that uh, that compromise. His policies please nobody, neither slaveholders nor abolitionists, and he was not denominated for president in 1852. Ah, but he wasn't through yet. The American party, uh, a third party, a know-nothing party, it's called the know-nothing party actually, uh, nominated Fillmore to come back in 1856, but he lost. <laughs> to another non-entity, James Buchanan, whom we'll talk about soon. 
So anyway, uh, Fillmore was the non-entity to well to um, be characteristic of all the old, uh, all the other non-entities, the non-entity of the non-entities. All right, he was followed by Franklin Pierce. Now Franklin Pierce was a Democrat by party, except that uh, his policies were all Southern. <laughs> he was a New Englander, uh, born in New Hampshire, where his father was a Civil a Revolutionary War general and a governor of New Hampshire. He went to college at Bowdoin College in Maine, and he graduated there in 1824. One of his classmates was the great American writer, Nathaniel Hawthorne. Nathaniel Hawthorne knew Franklin Pierce quite well. And when he heard that Pierce had been nominated for president, Hawthorne said, Frank Pierce for president? God help the country. <laughs> we are talking about non-entities here. Um, Pierce was elected to the New Hampshire State Legislature and eventually went to the U.S. House of, Senate, House of Representatives, was elected a U.S. Senator, became a, a, a Brigadier General in the Mexican War under Winfield Scott, and was nominated for the uh, presidential nomination in the Democratic Party on the 49th ballot. He defeated his Commander-in-Chief in the war, General Winfield Scott, a Whig in the election. And then, while he was against slavery, he was influenced by every Southerner he had ever met. He supported the Kansas-Nebraska Act, which left the question of slavery to the new territories in Kansas, popular vote. And that, in turn, led to bleeding Kansas, the forerunner of the Civil War. Pierce also signed a treaty with Canada, and approved the Gadsden Purchase. Now, the Gadsden Purchase is something you may not have known about. It was in 1852 that Pierce was nominated for president and elected. At that time, there was a lot of talk about the first transcontinental railroad to the Pacific Coast. And railroad politics dominated the 50s, because everybody thought that uh, even with California in the Union since 1850, the Western territories would be so far away and so isolated and so uh, so uh, difficult to reach that there would never be more than one railroad to the Pacific Coast. And whichever section of the country, and of course the North and South were already sectionalized, Whichever section of the country got to build the railroad to the Pacific Coast would be the permanently dominant section of the country for that reason. Well, the, the uh, senators from the Midwest, and particularly Stephen Douglas, who owned a lot of property in Chicago and around it, and was a senator from Illinois, Douglas came up with the idea of the Kansas-Nebraska Act, which split the Kansas Territory and Nebraska Territories apart. Nebraska Territory would never be subject to slavery under Douglas's plan. 
But Kansas would be what the, the people of Kansas voted to be, slave state or free state. And it caused a tremendous, tremendous reaction in the North because it repealed the Missouri Compromise. The Missouri Compromise said that there should never be a slave state north of the parallel of the, that uh, the border of Missouri uh, is the only place that it breaks the, the parallel that uh, would be nothing, nothing but free territory north of it. And uh, that, of course, would have been broken if uh, Kansas become a slave state. So there was a great fight over Stephen Douglas's bill, uh, the Kansas-Nebraska Act. That meant that the Southerners had a chance to build the railroad, if that would have happened. And they wanted it to start from Memphis or New Orleans. But there was a problem, a piece of Mexico that uh, did not fall under the Mexican session after the Mexican War. Uh, south of the Gila River in Arizona was in the way of the survey for a southern railroad to the Pacific Coast. And Franklin Pierce, a New Hampshire man, a northern president, sent James Gadsden, a southerner from Alabama, to Mexico City to negotiate with the Mexican government for the purchase of this piece of land, the Gadsden Purchase, strictly because it was barring the, the, the uh, Southern uh, Railroad Survey to the Pacific Coast. So now we have the Gadsden Purchase arranged by a Southerner arranged by a president from the north who sent the southerner to buy the thing and in doing so uh, blocked the southern route to the Pacific Coast. So how do you deal with Franklin Pierce? Uh, Pierce also had another couple of problems. One was um, his son, a very beloved son, was killed in, guess what, a train accident shortly before he became president. His wife refused to be the first lady. She wanted to be in, in hiding all the time. She was in, in mourning, and she wore black all the time and never did anything. And Franklin Pierce was sort of like his wife. He didn't like to do things. He was too busy grieving with her. So that was another problem. And Pierce is also thought to have been uh, pretty good with the, with the uh, glass of whiskey in his hand. All right. We had Fillmore. We had Pierce. And here comes the next member of this, this triumvirate, James Buchanan, the 15th president. The only president in our history who was never married. And, of course, uh, there's a great deal of suspicion about uh, what his sexual orientation was. Uh, he was born in 18, it's in, no, 1791. Uh, the only thing about it that uh, is, is notable is he was born on Shakespeare's birthday, April 23rd. <laughs> he went to college in Pennsylvania, and uh, his home was in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and we've been to his home. Uh, he owned a home in uh, Lancaster 
which is now a very fine restaurant. And Rachel and I were there a couple of years ago and enjoyed dinner a la James Buchanan. Uh, and uh, this restaurant has a, a hitching post behind it because the stock dealers who would come with their cattle and uh, have their cattle, uh, you know, turned into meat, uh, all came on horseback, and the inn, the, the restaurant that was, you know, it was James Buchanan's farmhouse, had, still has, pitching posts behind it. So <laughs> a memory of the stock traders who would used to come there. Buchanan's total qualifications for president is really his only serious qualification was that he was this U.S. ambassador to the court of St. James, the most important U.S. ambassador, ambassador to Great Britain. And as such, he was out of the country after the, uh, let's see, after what date? I think after 1851, uh, I think it was. Um, and he was out of the public eye. Nobody knew exactly where he stood between the South and the North. And uh, during the leading Kansas, which was on, in uh, Pierce's administration, and carried over into Buchanan's. Buchanan was nominated by the Democrats and he was elected president in 1856. And he did anything and everything he could to do nothing. He didn't want to take any action because whatever he did would make one side or the other angry with him. So he, <laughs> he spent his entire five, four years in office trying to keep the peace by not doing anything or saying anything. <laughs> And he left office having failed to deal decisively with the situation and left it all to Lincoln to take care of. And, of course, Lincoln, being the great president that he was, uh, was the exact opposite of James Buchanan. Um, I think it was J David Axelrod who ran Hillary Clinton's, uh, not Hillary Clinton's campaign, I'm sorry, Bill Clinton's campaigns, uh, and, and who certainly ran uh, Obama's campaigns. Uh, he said uh, about Obama and uh, the successor, uh, our current president, that traditionally in history, a strong president is followed by somebody exactly opposite, and a weak president is followed by somebody exactly opposite. And it was certainly true in the case of uh, Obama and uh, Trump, and certainly it was true in the case of Buchanan and Lincoln, a weak president to a strong president. All right, now summing this all up, uh, the, of the people we've been talking about, from 1841, when William Henry Harrison was elected president and took, the, took office, was elected in 1840, and took office, there were six presidents, Oh, seven, seven presidents between William Henry Harrison and uh, Abraham Lincoln. Of those seven presidents, every one but James Polk was a non-entity. And they got more and more non-entitied 
as they got closer and closer to having to make decisions. So here we have uh, one of the great reasons for why there were so many non-entity presidents at that time, because there was so much division in the country at that time, and nobody could bring the, the parts together. And unfortunately, uh, the only thing Lincoln couldn't do was prevent the war, but he could win the war, and he could take a stand, and he did. And he tried to uh, be fair to the South. And as a matter of fact, if John, Hen uh, John Wilkes Booth hadn't assassinated Lincoln in 1865, uh, a couple of weeks before the war ended, um, the story of Reconstruction might have been very different because the uh, result was another non-entity president. Who was president after Lincoln? Anybody remember? His name was Andrew Johnson. Lincoln, of course, was the first Republican president. Andrew Johnson was not even a, a Republican. He was put on the ticket with Lincoln after Lincoln's first term. Lincoln's first vice president was a Maine man named um, Hannibal Hamlin. But Hamlin was dismissed because he was too much like the North, too, much, too favorable to the North. And Lincoln wanted to have a, a vice president who could have de dealings with the South and be trusted in the South. And so he managed to get Andrew Johnson, who had been born in the South, North Carolina, and lived his whole life in the South, mostly in Tennessee, uh, and was a, a Democrat, Southern Democrat. And so they ran on neither the Republican nor Democratic tickets. In 1864, they ran on the Union ticket. Johnson had opposed secession, but he was a, he was a Southerner, and he was very much a Southerner in his, his political beliefs. He had been governor of Tennessee, and he had been a senator. He was a slaveholder, although he opposed secession, and he tried to prevent Tennessee from seceding. And so Lincoln thought he had found the right guy to be the link between the Southerners and the Northerners. But Lincoln's assassination made Johnson president, and that was not at all what Lincoln had thought about. Johnson was the first president to be uh, an apprentice rather than a educated man. Uh, he ran away from his apprenticeship and be, as a tailor, and after two years, uh, he decided that was enough of being a tailor. Um, he was a hard drinker, and he was a very uncompromising man. He knew what he wanted, and he was not what the public, the northern public, wanted. So uh, that's how Andrew Johnson got to be president. And afterwards, he was the first president to be impeached. 
and he came very close to being convicted. But he wasn't, largely because of a story that uh, you can read in the the John Kennedy's book, John F. Kennedy's book, Profiles in Courage. A senator from Kansas, I believe it was, uh, voted to keep Andrew Johnson in office because he believed in having a government that was not dominated by one side or the other and that uh, could be be, uh, capable of compromise. And that senator lost his seat in the Senate, but kept Andrew Johnson in the presidency. Well, Johnson clearly was not going to be renominated by the Republicans in 1868, and he was sent back to the South and re-elected to the Senate, and he died in Tennessee in 1875. As As the Vice President of the United States, and he was a compromised choice, and as President, it didn't work. That brings to the uh, fore General Ulysses Grant. Now, Grant is not considered a non-entity, but Grant was also not a great president. He was a great military officer. He was clearly, far and away, the most important and most successful and most clear-headed of all the generals in the Civil War, including Robert E. Lee. And why do I say that? Because Lee could not see further than that Virginia was was his country. He didn't think of the United States as one country. He thought of it as a group of independent states. And he belonged to the state of Virginia rather than to the United States of America. And as a result, he took the, he uh, rejected the offer that Lincoln made to him to be general-in-chief of the Union Army and became the head of the Confederate Army, uh, technically the Army of Virginia. He called it the Army of Northern Virginia, gave it a name, and it was meant to be the State Army of Northern Virginia. That's the way Lee thought. And it was because he thought that way that he was unable to uh, be as capable a commander as he might otherwise have been. There was a great deal of anti-Virginia feeling in the other southern states because Virginia was the kingpin. Uh, All the wealth was there. uh, All the political leadership, the best political leadership was there. Virginia was the, uh, what would you say, the queen state of the South. And Lee was from the old, an old Virginia family. Uh, his father had been a successful cavalry officer in the Revolutionary War. And Lee thought of Virginia very much as his country. Uh, I think he may have learned his lesson by the time the war was over. But uh, anyway, it was Grant who was the great greatest military officer of the war. But Grant apparently lost interest after he had won the war. Uh, I think he felt that uh, his presidency was sort of a a award for his service in the war 
and he didn't take it very seriously. Also, Grant appears to have had a great flaw in his character, and I'll talk about that uh, when I get through with talking about a couple more of the true uh, non-entities. Okay, after Grant, there came Rutherford B. Hayes. Rutherford Hayes was known really for only one thing. That was his election, which was the most result of the most fraudulent election we have ever had up until the last 2016. Hayes was nominated on the Republican ticket. His opponent on the Democratic side was Samuel Tilden from New York. Well, what happened was there were a uh, there was a a uh, confusion in the electoral college. There was no majority in the electoral college uh, when some of the southern states submitted two sets of electoral votes. So an electoral commission was formed, uh, consisting of seven Democrats, seven Republicans, and a Supreme Court justice. And that was that uh, commission was charged with deciding who won the election. It was very close, but uh, Hayes was behind by something like eight eight electoral votes. I believe it was eight electoral votes, as a matter of fact. Well, then the commission got um, got wrecked because the Supreme Court justice, who was supposed to be the neutral person, resigned. <laughs> And they appointed in his stead another Republican. That made it eight to seven in the commission. And the commission voted eight to seven to uh, accept all the eight Republican electors. And Samuel Tilden wound up one electoral vote short. And it was, <laughs> and that's how Hayes became president. Why is this uh, such a, a uh, corrupt deal? Because the cost of it was Hayes' promise to remove all the federal troops from the South after the Civil War. They were occupying the South, protecting the rights of black citizens in the South. And after this election, where the Republicans made a deal with the uh, Democrats in the South, um, the Democrats said, okay, you can be president of the United States, Mr. Hayes, but we'll take, if you'll take the troops out of the South that we don't want here. And that was the beginning of Jim Crow, the beginning of the uh, segregation, resegregation, segregation, segregation of the South, and the beginning of what lasted until the, what, 1960s. And it's still has uh, echoes today. The, so uh, you can't call uh, Hayes a non-entity, but you can call him an ineffective president. <laughs> All right, then there's another one. Uh, does this list continue and seemingly, it's seemingly endless? Chester Allen Arthur. Now, Chester Arthur born in 1829 in Vermont, but he went to school in New York and uh, finally became the customs 
head of a customs house in New York City. Now, the customs house was one of the probably the most corrupt uh, agency in America. Bribery was absolutely rampant. Uh, the everybody got a cut, and Arthur was the head of the customs house. Well, <laughs> comes the election of eighteen seventy. What was eighteen eighty? Oh, well, we skipped eighteen. I skipped eighteen eighty. Uh, Garfield was nominated in 1880, and he would have been a good president, except he got killed by an assassin when he was only in office for, uh, what, about six months. So, again, uh, an accidental president, Arthur. But Arthur, when he became president, did something absolutely inconceivable, inconceivable. He became the president who introduced the civil service in place of uh, the uh, spoil system. And his own customs house, where he had been the head of the customs house, the most corrupt agency in the country, now was running on civil service as a result of Arthur's presidency. So Chester Arthur is a, is a uh, remarkable case of... Uh, Turning, turning from bad to good in midstream. Unfortunately for Arthur, he had Bright's disease, a disease of the kidneys that's just almost always fatal, and he died shortly after leaving the presidency. Okay, that brings us to the list, the end of that list of those presidents. That whole period from 1840 to 1884. Six or yeah, 1884, 1884, was dominated by non-entities sprinkled with James Polk and Abraham Lincoln. And there was a reason for all those non-entities. As I said before, it was because the country was so divided that nobody could uh, get ahead uh, except with Lincoln. And uh, Lincoln, of course, uh, paid for it with the Civil War. And uh, Polk, Polk was early, early enough on that he was able to bridge the gap for four years. So we have this whole line of non-entities. Now, they weren't the only ones, though. I wanted to tell you about a couple others, but I don't have time right now. Uh, I will just name them. Benjamin Harrison, whose grandfather was a non-entity, and whose great-grandfather had been a signer of the Declaration of Independence, he was elected in 1888 between the two terms of Grover Cleveland. Cleveland, the Democrat, was elected in 1888. Harrison won the election in 1889, although he lost the popular vote. The Electoral College raises its head. And he was elected by the Electoral College, although he didn't win the popular vote. But four years later, Cleveland got his revenge. Cleveland ran for president again for the third straight time. And this time, he won both the popular vote and the electoral vote and sent Benjamin Harrison II um, down, uh, well, Benjamin Harrison down 
to uh, Indianapolis and uh, where he stayed for the rest of his life. All right, so Benjamin Harrison is most known for being the president elected first by the Electoral College while losing the uh, public the public vote. Then there was a couple of other non-entities. Both of them were followed uh, the first uh, the terms of Woodrow Wilson, uh, the man who I said before I considered the most overrated president. Harding was the uh, first of them. He was elected in 1918, yeah, 1921. And he died a mysterious death in 1923 and had an absolutely horrible administration marked by scandals. And, of course, I mentioned before uh, his mistresses. Um, he was succeeded by Calvin Coolidge, whose real first name was John. Uh, he was the only president who took the oath of office from his father. <laughs> And his most famous saying was, there is no right to strike against the public safety at any time, anywhere, any, by anybody. And then his second one, uh, I do not choose to run for president in 1928. He was a non-entity of a different type. He slept his way through his term. Calvin Coolidge slept 10 hours a night and took naps during the daytime. Can you imagine a president of the United States today sleeping 10 hours a day and taking naps during, during uh, the afternoon? Uh, the presidency has certainly changed since Calvin Coolidge. All right, then we have one of the underrated presidents, Herbert Hoover. And Herbert Hoover was a interesting character because he was never an elected officer except to the presidency. And, uh, he was an engineering uh, genius and an organizer and a, a, you know, a very capable man. He was the relief administrator in World War I in charge of American relief administration and Russian relief. And he was secretary of commerce under both Harding and Coolidge. And some of the historians to this day believe that he was the most successful Secretary of Commerce ever to hold that office. But he happened to run for president in the fall of 1932, right after the stock market crash in October. And he was blamed for the recession, which he had literally nothing to do with. And then four years later, of course, uh, uh, he was out of office in 1932 and uh, never got back in. And uh, 32 became the year when the Democratic coalition took over the uh, majority for the next 30 years. So that's uh, the story of, of uh, Hoover, who had the misfortune to be elected to the right office at the wrong time. Now, what makes a good president? What about Obama? Well, I've left Obama out because so far uh, there's not a consensus uh, about Obama. Uh, the people who 
love him, absolutely adore him. And the people who disliked him immensely still dislike him immensely and are trying to re, uh, replace his, uh, everything he did, trying to wipe out his legacy. So we can't, we can't uh, really know what the long-range uh, result will be about Obama. My personal feeling is that 20 years from now he'll be considered a great president. But uh, not, you can't do that right now. You can't uh, say that right now. All right. I just wanted to wind up what I'm talking about tonight about by saying the, the things that I think make a great chief executive or a lesser chief executive or a poor chief executive. I think the first necessity of a great president is what he, the great ones get things done. What is the most important, what are the most important things that he accomplishes during his term of office? Washington, of course, set all the standards. Uh, Lincoln had a, a nation that broke in front of him, and he managed to bring the two sides back again, back together. His under his uh, in, under his presidency, uh, all of the financial and commercial and educational standards, which we know so well today, were were created under Abraham Lincoln, and of course. Lincoln had the greatest vision of all, a vision of a country free from racism as well as uh, its product, slavery. And unfortunately, the legacy of Lincoln has never become fully true. All right, uh, Theodore Roosevelt. Not only was he the first president to see the United States as an international power, a foreign power. He won the Nobel Peace Prize, you know, for uh, settling the dispute between Japan and Russia. Uh, so he was uh, very active in the international area, but he also was a very far-seeing uh, domestic president. It was Theodore Roosevelt who saw the United States in, in environmental terms, he created the national park system and many other national monuments and whatever. He was the very first environmentally conscious president, and every environmentally conscious president since him has been uh, his following, followed in his footsteps. And finally, the other great president of this 20th century, uh, his fifth cousin, Franklin Roosevelt, who got the United States through the crisis of World War II by remaking the conception of the American government on the national level. And that, I think, is still aching some people in the Republican Party. Uh, they don't want to have an activist government uh, in Washington that they see as beyond the reach of uh, what government should do. And I think they're wrong, but that's, you know, that's my thinking. <clears throat> then, in addition to the, the uh, 
necessity for getting things done and the necessity of a vision of the future and having the guts and skills to work towards that future. Um, those are the first two factors I, I look for in a, in a great president. The third one is presidential character and the ability of the president to read the character of others. Now, uh, I can only say that the character of the present occupant of the White House is, shall we say, somewhat lacking. And his ability to read the character of others is absolutely nil. Look at what he has done with Vladimir Putin. He has still never rejected Putin. He thinks Putin is more trustworthy than the FBI. Uh, Warren Harding was another president who couldn't read character in other people. That's why he had so many scandals. The people who, took, who uh, knew he wasn't very smart in that way took advantage of him. All right? Um, Washington and Lincoln particularly stand out as knowing how to read character in other people. And the fourth factor is experience coupled with knowledge. That's it. Uh, it is almost impossible to be a successful president if you don't have political experience and if you don't have knowledge. And I call your attention to Washington, D.C. today. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is what I've got to talk about tonight. Bob? Ira, this is just terrific. We have heard a great master, a great student of history, and we thank you so much. Let's see if we have a few questions. I have one, if I may. You sure. didn't mention Harry Truman. Where yeah. do you rate Harry Truman? I think Harry Truman has been uh, an underrated president and now has come pretty much into his own. Uh, when Truman left office, Everybody thought he was as nothing, you know, an nincompoop, because he happened to follow Franklin Roosevelt and couldn't be Roosevelt. But it was Truman who desegregated the armed forces. It wasn't Roosevelt. It was Truman. That's right. And it was also Truman who seized the steel mills to prevent a, a disastrous strike. Uh, Truman was not afraid to act. And I think that's the, the, the greatest thing about Harry was the sign he had on his desk. Everybody knows this story, I think. Yes. The, the sign here. on Truman's desk said, the buck stops here. Right. <laughs> he wasn't afraid to make decisions. The exact opposite of James Buchanan. Okay, let's see. Give your name, please, and ask your question. If anyone has any Boy, if nobody's got any questions, either nobody was listening or everybody was listening that. very well. <laughs> I hear somebody there. Give yeah. a name, please. Don oh, Queen here. Okay, I, Don. Don Queen, go ahead. I I remember reading in Newsweek years and years ago, they had President Polk number four in the great presidents because of the... Yeah, you know, well, Polk was a great president. Yeah, he was. He increased his 
Of course, he did it by taking it away from Mexico, but <laughs> he increased the size of the... Yeah, well, what happened with Mexico was Polk had sent troops to the border, and the Mexican army attacked the troops, and Polk resulted, re, resulted re, you know, um, in, in uh, declaring war on Mexico, getting Congress uh, to declare war on Mexico, because Mexico attacked American troops on American soil. Okay, uh, let's uh, ask, uh, do we have another question? Uh, how about you? I have a separate. This Go is ahead. Debbie Wait, give I a have name. A separate Debbie Kessler. Okay, Debbie. Hi, hi Ira. Um, um, it's totally separate from the topic. I want to know if your train books are still available somewhere. Oh, oh yeah. I'm sorry. What was the question? Uh, she wants to know if your Mark Twain book. Oh. No, 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 no. No, the train, your train. The oh, your train, train book. Did you write one on the railroad, Ira? He's done lectures to us on them. Oh, the train book, America book. The only yes. way you can get it would be if you picked up a uh, copy on the Internet somewhere, from a used copy. It's been out of print for 20 years. Oh, Ira <laughs> really okay. knows the railroad. Uh, Mark Twain yes. is on Bookshare because I got it yes, on there, Mark, uh, Ira's book on Mark Twain. Is yeah, I got that. And it's on Bookshare. I, I also yeah. have another one that's finished but hasn't been published yet. You, uh, can you give the topic at least? Well, Are you ready to one, do that? The new one is called The Hidden Holes. And it's about all the things that you will find in the Sherlock Holmes stories that you never thought you'd find. Oh, my goodness. Because oh. this book takes all 60 of the Holmes stories and treats them as serious literature. <laughs> and Arthur Conan Doyle was a great writer, and he yes. was more than a great writer. He was a great social critic and a great visionary of his times. Uh, and his Sherlock Holmes stories contain the most bitter criticism of Victorian England I have ever read written at that time. All right. Okay, uh, another question? He actually saw through... Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, our Yeah, just a second. He actually saw through what the Victorians uh, themselves didn't see through. They thought they had settled on the greatest civilization in the history of the world, and it was never going to change. And Doyle realized that, well, number one, they didn't have the, the greatest civilization in the history of the world, their civilization wasn't morally or uh, in, in many other ways any better than the caveman. <laughs> and secondly, that it wasn't going to last. Oh, my gosh. Okay, let's see if we get one or two more questions. Anybody else? Okay, Ira, you get an A and they get an A, I guess. They understand uh, what you're talking about. We want to thank you so very much. And we'll be in touch because who knows what I have in mind. I'll let you know as we get um, very soon. I want to thank you on behalf of Accessible World. Thank you and Rachel for being here this evening. Well, thank, thank you, you. And let's, we'll say thank you, too. Thank you and good night. Okay. Thank good you night, and good night, everybody. she says. All right. Thank you, Ira. I'm going to stop thank the recording. You.